Hello, good morning and welcome, fair listeners. I come to you live, or at least live recording, from the ever damp and depressing and decaying heart of the thing formerly known as the British Empire. This is Red Star Radio, and I am coming to you with our inaugural episode today. As we here in this fair, blighted isle of ours are facing the uh, farrago of a general election, whereby we get to vote for our oppressors for the next few years. Many see this election as containing a good deal more hope than previous attempts, and we'll come to that later. But first, about us or more specifically about me. This is a podcast that will be very much of the Marxist-Leninist persuasion. Um, as several people on Twitter call me every, several, several times a day, believing it to be an insult, this is a tanky podcast. But it is not merely for my fellow tankies. It is for those who are maybe tank-curious, tank-adjacent, or tank neutral at the very least. So expect to hear a great deal about the need for the overthrow of capitalism, the need for us all here in the Western imperialist metropoles to be consistently anti-imperialist, and do not expect me to be carrying any water for the likes of Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders, or anybody else in the, uh, the fetid and rotting tradition of European-style social democracy who seem to believe that we can build a workers' paradise as long as we can build it on the blood and bones of those in the colonial, uh, colonised and exploited nations. So now we've got our ground rules out of the way, we can look at what are we doing today? What is this first episode of ours going to be about? And today I thought it would be instructive to focus on an issue that has sent the entire ruling class and pretty much everybody else in the, in Britain today into some sort of collective political nervous breakdown. And that is the troubled and vexatious subject of Britain leaving the European Union, or more specifically, uh, voting to leave it three years ago. And the machinations that have taken place within the, the ruling class and the political class since then to block it. Why? That is important for socialists and communists to actually pay attention to and why it is vital for anybody who wishes to see real socialist change in Britain or indeed in any other nation currently within the European Union to leave that entity and to ensure its total collapse. We will begin by looking at, for those listeners who are unfamiliar with it, and European Union politics and history are something that is rather esoteric at the best of times. So for listeners who are not familiar with it, here as our first part of call will be a brief overview of the history of this institution, why it was created, who created it, and why the ruling class of Britain has been so mad keen on staying in it at all costs, and why this has caused the political contortions that it has within the uh, palace of sin, the den of inequity, that is the House of Commons and the elephant's graveyard of politics, the House of Lords. So let us begin with what is the European Union? European Union is the current form of something that has been in 
continual existence since uh, the early 1950s. In 1952, in the aftermath of the destruction of World War II and the attempt to rebuild capitalism in Western Europe, uh, several institutions were created to strengthen that, the first of which was NATO, which is... uh, still around today in its uh, in a much expanded form and a much more aggressive form. And the other one was the European Coal and Steel Community, founded in 1952 and principally was aimed at creating a barrier-free trade in coal and steel. This was uh, the project of six Western European countries at the time and this was what expanded later into becoming the uh, European Economic Community, later the European Union. And from its very beginning, it was founded by men who were very ambitious in their targets for this creation. They were very clear about what they wanted to achieve. Its intellectual founders, such as the political thinker Jean Monnet and others of a similar philosophical bent to him, what they wanted to form was something that would not only create a degree of unity in the capitalist parts of Western Europe, but also something that would slowly take away the ability of the working class as a voting bloc and as the organised working class through its trade union movements to actually affect government policy on key areas, most specifically economics. Monet and others were of the opinion that the demands of the working class had destabilised the European states. And in their view, that is what had led to World War I and World War II. And that to clamp down on this ever-rising class conflict and guard against what they viewed correctly as the threat that the USSR and Soviet communism posed to them, they needed to come up with an institution that would insulate policymakers against democratic decisions made by the voting populations of Europe. This is what they wanted to do with what was initially known as the European Coal and Steel Community. And this is what developed into the European Economic Community and and then the European Union. They were very clear from the start that the aim was to deliver economic policy into the hands of a, a series of technocrats based in Strasbourg and Brussels that would be not subject to the same kind of pressures that a national government would. It's worth pausing at this moment to think about where the class struggle lay in terms of when the European coal and steel community was founded. And I say that because it's important to realise just for how little time the working class of Britain and Western Europe had actually been fully enfranchised with the right to vote. And it was only really in Britain in 1929 that the population as a whole was fully enfranchised because that was the first election in which women could actually take part on an equal footing with men. It had been a long process of winning that particular equality and it had been a long process in Britain and the other European, Western European nations since the beginning of the uh, the dawn of uh, capitalism, a struggle that ran through the 19th century, often breaking out in very bitter open class warfare between the capitalists and their allies and the landed gentry in Britain, and the rising, first of all, the rising middle class and then the rising working class. From the time of the uh, massacre carried out at St Peter's Field in Manchester 200 years ago, 
where those uh, working working class people from all the way across Greater Manchester and the Northwest were cut down by the local um, what was known as the local yeomanry, the local militia, for merely asking for the right for just working class men to vote. This was the beginning of a long struggle that went through the struggle for the Great Reform Act of the early 1830s through to the Chartist struggle, of which both Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels participated, and later on to the various reform acts pushed through by both Tory and Liberal Prime Ministers, uh, with uh, Disraeli and Gladstone being the foremost amongst them, uh, which slowly enfranchised the working class of Britain um, over many years in response to the building pressure upon them coming from uh, the working class, which despite huge and very brutal state repression, was continuing to build strength through its union movement and through uh, the development of the ability of working class candidates to gain votes even on a heavily restricted franchise in capitalist elections. So this process took best part of um, a hundred years between the massacre at what became known as Peterloo and the full enfranchisement of the entire working class including women in 1929. It was over a hundred, it was just a hundred and ten years. So by the time the European coal and steel community is formed, the working class in Britain and the rest of Western Europe has only really had the full rights to vote for less than a generation. And in that generation, you've seen ever more demands being made and ever more, and demands after, that after World War II being made by the working class movement that had to be accommodated by the ruling class of Britain and the rest of the Western European nations. Because in the aftermath of World War II, not only was capitalism in Britain very weakened by uh, having to sustain a full-on war economy for six years to... Uh, actually fight to the end against the uh, against Nazi Germany but also the working class of Britain had been mobilized en masse both in the army and in industry and was coming back from the war not only unified for in their determination to achieve something far better in this society but also was coming back um, having experienced or read about the triumph of the armies of the Soviet Union against the Nazis, the instinctive drive towards socialism that the masses engaged in, in the nations freed from fascist repression, in nations like Italy, in nations like France, where the resistance movements against the Nazis were led by communists, socialists and other working class organisations. So there was a, it was a time at the end of World War II where Soviet communism had a great appeal to the working class of, of Western Europe and also where the working class had made it clear to the ruling class that they were not prepared to accept the phony promises that had followed World War I where the likes of David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister at the end of World War I, had promised to land fit for heroes returning from the war, only to deliver ever-increasing poverty and desperation, culminating in the misery of the Great Depression and the wage, wage cuts, service cuts, and general 
spirit of poverty and decline that accompanied the 1930s. So this is all necessary background to understanding the thinking of men like Jean Monnet when founding the European coal and steel community. These men looked at the ever-increasing demands that were being made by the working class. They looked at the gains being made by social democratic parties and more scarily for them by communist parties in France and Italy and the, and the fact that the growth of the Eastern Bloc of socialist nations was taking place and they thought that they needed to find a way to insulate uh, themselves from these ever-increasing demands and this is what the European Union was ultimately setting out to do. Now where do we fit in in terms of the British ruling class and their wish to join the European economic community as it was then and their devout wish right now to stay in the European Union at the cost of well, sacrificing any uh, even vaguest commitment to democracy. Now, the British ruling class after World War II did initially want to go back to the way that things had been run in the 1930s. Now, the smarter of them, for instance, John Maynard Keynes, realised that there was no going back, that the British Empire couldn't rebuild itself in the same way the bankruptcy of the country was too great. The uh, anti-colonial, anti-imperialist movements in uh, colonial India and then across the rest of British-occupied Africa were growing too quickly and too powerfully to be contained. The last attempt of the British ruling class to exert themselves as an independent power on the world stage came in 1956 when they conspired with France and Israel to try and depose Gamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, a war that the British managed to win militarily and lose spectacularly politically after the American Empire imperialists led by President Eisenhower decided that they were no longer prepared to take independent acts of imperialism by Britain and France and essentially crushed the British economy by causing a run on the pound. After that, the British ruling class in unanimity decided to act as merely the junior partner of American imperialism, but to sustain the British Empire, not through direct occupation of other countries, but through the moving around of capital, the moving around of finance capital, which is the real basis for imperialism as explored comprehensively by Lenin in his work imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. It is finance capital which is the dominant part of the British economy and has been the dominant part of it really since before World War II. In fact, if you look back all the way to the 1870s, you can see that investment inside British industry by the British capitalist class have been steadily declining and that investment into finance capital have been steadily increasing. This led to British industry being steadily outstripped by initially a newly unified Germany in the 1870s and then the United States after they'd recovered from the destruction of the American Civil War. This means that the, the slow decline of British manufacturing had been going on for an awful long time and that either the growth after World War II uh, stimulated by reconstruction efforts didn't stop this decline. In fact, the British ruling class moved more and more capital into financial capital, uh, financial capitalization, 
and was to more and more abandon manufacturing as a sector of the economy in the UK, choosing instead to focus on investments and deals overseas and stir the service sector economy in the UK. We'll come to more of that later, but that's the important foreground to bear in mind when looking at why the British ruling class wanted to enter the European Union. It is, as current Prime Minister Boris Johnson was to say in an unpublished um, editorial in 2016, a captive market for British capital goods and the entry fee into it is a rather small price to pay. And what the membership of what was then the European Economic Community, later the European Union, gives to British capitalism is, it not only does it enable it to move itself round Europe at um, a rate that is unrestrained by any barriers to capital, it also brings in now, especially with the entry of the former socialist bloc nations into the EU, a large la uh, reserve army of labour that British capital can bring into Britain to be hyper-exploited. It brings in a highly educated workforce from comparatively low-wage nations which British capitalism can exploit in its high-staff turnover industries in the service sector. So for these reasons, and for the reason that the European Union enables British capitalism to come together with other national capitals to better exploit nations in uh, Africa, Asia and other places that have been formerly colonised by European powers, by, by to a certain extent working together, they can exploit far more. This is why the British ruling class wanted in on the European project from the start and also part of the reason why Charles de Gaulle, President of France in the early 1960s, blocked Harold Macmillan's attempt to take Britain into the European economic community. Charles de Gaulle at the time said that Britain would be nothing more than the United States' pilot fish inside the EU and he was entirely accurate in that. The perspective of the, of the British ruling class when it comes to Europe is that they want to be into it, uh, they want to be part of it and enjoy the increased ability to exploit that that brings them. But also the other key side of their of British imperialism's continuing strength is its alliance with the United States. That part of it is as crucial to its maintenance as its membership in the European Union and that is why the British ruling class is so desperately keen to preserve both. Now it should be said that the attempts to join the European Economic Community didn't end with uh, de Gaulle's blocking of Macmillan, obviously. This is something that was returned to again by the Heath government in the early 1970s, and it was Heath, ultimately, who managed to succeed in persuading his own Conservative Party that joining the European Economic Community was a good idea, and for, mainly by lying through his teeth, managed to get this through Parliament. It is also worth noting that at the time of uh, Britain's first joining of the EEC that the Labour Party was very divided on the issue. In fact, you can look online now uh, on YouTube and find contributions to the debate at Labour Party conferences in the middle 70s where the likes of Peter Shaw, Tony Benn, 
Michael Foote and others were all speaking vehemently against joining the European Union or the European Economic Community as it was then on the grounds that this would be a barrier to the kind of reformist socialist change that they wanted to see in Britain. And this was a debate that continued in the Labour Party for a long time. It was certainly something that um, was also very hotly debated within the unions themselves by delegates to the TUC and Labour Party conference. This culminated in uh, two key events. First of all, Wilson seeking to resolve the disputes within the Labour Party, promised a referendum on British membership of the EEC in 1975 when Labour had uh, re office after the two elections of 1974. This referendum should really be studied in far greater detail than it has been because what it shows in terms of who was lining up on which side is that there was near unanimity amongst the British ruling class and the British um, political party leaderships at the time. Now, it should be noted as a matter of uh, great interest that at the time, the new leader of the Conservative Party, Margaret Thatcher, was one of the leading campaigners to remain within the European Economic Community. And the Tory party, other than the followers of Enoch Powell, were almost completely unified in their belief that this was a positive thing and it should be sustained. They were joined in this by the right wing of the Labour Party, led by characters such as uh, Roy Jenkins, who would later go on to found the uh, rabidly pro-EU SDP. Jenkins actually led a rebellion of Labour MPs in the House of Commons to vote for membership of the European Economic Community and in defiance of the decided policy of the Labour Party conference at the time. Now, as is always the case with right-wing rebellions inside the Labour Party, they got away with it in a way that the left would not. It's important to mention all of this with regard to the 1975 referendum because it reveals that Going into the EU, even the right, nominally um, right, traditional right-wing party, the traditional party of British capitalism, which came to be defined by its splits over the EU, was completely unified in wishing to remain part of the EEC. In fact, when she attained power in the 1979 general election, Margaret Thatcher went on to be one of the most pro-EU prime ministers that the country had ever had. She signed away more sovereignty to Brussels than anybody before or since and was incredibly uh, enthusiastic about the European economic community as it was then, right up until the point where the socialist bloc imploded and the um, reunification of Germany became a very real thing. It was at that point that Thatcher and several and many other Tories turned against the uh, the EEC and became very suspicious of it. Now this has to be said, it was not out of any commitment to democracy that this um, turn came. It was a result of a fear within a particular section of the British ruling class that a unified Germany would become an economic and political powerhouse that would completely dominate any um EEC or EU type organisation and this is actually what has come to pass and it was the splits over this within the ruling class reflected within the Conservative Party that 
partly caused the end of Thatcher's premiership and plagued the Conservative Party under John Major all the way through the 1990s to the point where it was one of the things that crippled um, his government and caused its ultimate downfall. Now at this stage it should be mentioned that this change within the Conservative Party was also mirrored in a change within the Labour Party. Now previously the Labour Party had been split on the issue of EEC membership um, with the likes of Shaw, Foot, Ben, Castle and others leading the charge against uh, EU me EEC membership. The change comes in the 1980s as many other things do. Now the key for this to understanding the change of the Labour Party to being a wholly pro-EEC, pro-EU, now pro-Remain organisation is the period between 1979 when Labour loses power and 1988. Now this change didn't happen overnight but what did happen was a series of industrial and political defeats for the wider working class movement and for the wider left that essentially freed the right wing of the Labour Party from any counter pressure. Now to understand this we'll start off first by looking at the latter period of the Callaghan government. Now in 1976 the British ruling class were screaming that British industry and economy was in crisis, that it needed fundamental change, that there was uh, there needed to be pay restraint in the public sector, that the unions needed to be brought to heel. Heath had been brought down by mass working class resistance to his attempts to push through anti-union laws, but the, the election of the Wilson and then the Callaghan government didn't solve anything. If anything, what happened was the actions of Wilson and Callaghan, their sidelining of the left in the party, and their very dodgy deal with the trade union leaders known as the social contract essentially paved the way for Thatcherism. In fact, Callaghan famously declared at the Labour Party conference in 1977 that you cannot now, nor could you ever, spend your way out of a recession, essentially renouncing the social democratic Keynesianism that had been the mainstay of the Labour Party's economic policies since World War II. That and the um, adoption of austerity measures demanded by the International Monetary Fund in return for a bailout negotiated by Dennis Healy essentially spelt the end of any attempt by the Labour Party right to pursue any kind of alternative to the kind of capitalism that was increasingly being demanded by the ruling class, that which we now come to know as neoliberalism. And neoliberalism as uh, economic logic was injected more into the system by Callaghan and Healy before Thatcher came along. In fact, the changes that Thatcher made and the attacks that she engaged in had already been prefigured by the Labour Party's period in government running up to 1979. Now, Labour begins its journey towards being a wholly pro-EU party with a split, the split of the Gang of Four as they were known, the um, not the Maoist Gang of Four, but the right-wing social democratic Gang of Four. David Owen, Bill Rogers, Roy Jenkins and Shirley Williams. 
These had all been very prominent ministers in previous Labour governments. Jenkins had been both Home Secretary and Chancellor of the Exchequer, and their split away in 1981 was partly triggered by the fact that the organised left within the Labour Party had made, at least on paper, a series of gains around inner party democracy, particularly relating to the ability of local Labour parties to deselect uh, sitting MPs as candidates for the next general election. This is something that the Parliamentary Labour Party has always had a complete freak out over. The idea that their what they regard as their seats by right should be threatened by accountability to the membership is something which sets them off on a usually on a tirade about the uh, the sacred freedom and duties of parliamentarians in a way that nothing else does and that continues to this day. But it wasn't just that. There was clearly an intensifying class struggle going on in Britain at the time against the Thatcher government and clearly the Labour Party back then was a battleground within this struggle. And with the left making gains, Michael Foote becoming leader who was on the left of the party though in reality through his leadership was merely a, a prisoner of the right of the party rather than being the spokesman for the left. The defection of the Gang of Four followed by many others from the Labour Party benches was designed to have as damaging an impact on the Labour Party as possible, to keep it out of power and to make sure that the left was stopped in its tracks. Now after the heavy defeat in the 1983 general election in which the SDP took a considerable share of the vote but didn't win many seats but did enough to damage the Labour Party in enough constituencies to ensure a heavy Tory majority was returned. The Labour Party leadership passed to a rather wretched individual by the name of Neil Kinnock, now known as uh, by his title, which is the Baron Kinnock of Bedwelty. If you don't believe me, look that up. It is as ridiculous as it sounds. Now, Kinnock had been on the left of the party throughout the 1970s. There's even uh, transcripts of his speeches in Parliament where he loudly and passionately defends and advances the cause of striking miners in the 1972 and 1974 miners strikes. Before his elevation to the leadership he'd been known to speak on platforms of the Trotskyite militant tendency which he later purged from the party. So when he was elected Kinnock was seen as a man of the left of the party and he was elected on the so-called dream ticket with a long-time mainstay of right-wing Labour politics, Roy Hattersley. And he sold, they sold themselves as this dream ticket that was going to balance out the divisions in the Labour Party and solve the problems and be able to better take on Thatcher. It proved to be absolutely untrue. What Kinnock did was push Labour Party policy relentlessly to the right, chasing after um, what he called economic credibility. But in reality, what he was doing was two things. He was trying to pushed Labour into a place where it was regarded as a safe pair of hands by the British capitalist class um, again, but he was also doing something else. He was also attempting to change fundamentally the voting base of the Labour Party to include within it more of what is referred to in political science and sociological circles as the professional and managerial class. And the professional and managerial class in Britain and its role in politics, its consciousness, its beliefs, is crucial to understanding why 
Um, the Labour Party now is such a divided house, but its main policy is for remaining in the European Union. Now, professional and managerial class is a term that was initially coined by the American political theorist uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, but it's something which has been explored by many, including those in the Marxist left since then. And it applies to Britain in similar ways as it does to the United States, but with obviously national characteristics. What professional and managerial class refers to is a class of people who don't fit in to the traditional Marxist definition of the petty bourgeoisie, i.e. the small capitalist, the small businessman, the maybe the sole trader, somebody who um, literally has a small amount of capital upon which they deploy to make small profits. Now, the professional and managerial class is different to that in that these are highly paid specialists, technicians, bureaucrats who work in often public sector jobs, who are very, very well remunerated for those jobs, but who don't necessarily have capital in the same way that the small businessman does. Now, this class in Britain and indeed elsewhere, but our focus is on Britain, grew steadily in the early period of the 20th century, but really exploded in growth after World War II. In the, they were the technicians and managers in the nationalised industries, they were the civil servants, they were the doctors, lawyers and others who made up the professions of the UK. Now, this expansion didn't necessarily lead to an expansion in the um, cut this bit out, cut this bit out, cut this bit out, the expansion of the professional and managerial class in Britain led to a fracturing of the Labour Party's voting base. You see, the professional and managerial class did, in many areas, vote Labour, but without a great deal of enthusiasm. And as their incomes rose, and as, the, and as their numbers rose, they started to look elsewhere. So you started to see a revival of the old Liberal Party. And it was uh, a lot of professional and managerial class votes that went to the SDP in the 1980s that split the Labour vote and essentially helped to keep Thatcher's Tories in power. Kinnock's objective was to win these people back. And he did so by a variety of uh, moves to take the Labour Party over to the right. And one of those was the complete abandonment and not just abandonment, but denunciation and betrayals of key um, strikes that were waged in the early 1980s, the most crucial of them being the strike of the National Union of Mine Workers, which saw mass support in within the working class, but it also saw the what was known as the soft left, the bit of the Labour Party left that was mainly associated with the professional and managerial classes, not just abandon the, the miners' struggle, but turn against it, and turn against it with a viciousness that uh, defined the Labour Party's response to it. Kinnock's betrayal of that struggle, and not only that, the wider TUC leadership's betrayal of that struggle, resulted in a catastrophic defeat in 1985, from which the union movement didn't recover, and more importantly than the official structures not recovering, the confidence and the ability of the working class to commit to that kind of struggle was damaged and nearly destroyed for a generation. In fact, it's 
arguable that we still haven't recovered from uh, that defeat 34 years ago. This was rapidly followed up by Rupert Murdoch's destruction of the print unions and a subsequent weakening of the National Union of Journalists and a series of other defeats that was combined with the rapid deindustrialization of Britain that had been going on really since the middle 60s but escalated in speed throughout the 1980s so that by the time we come to the end of that decade and the end of Thatcher's leadership not only has the working class been battered and defeated but the working class's industry uh, and communities attached to those industries have been either incredibly badly damaged or destroyed. The union movement has lost its most militant elements in the form of the miners and uh, some of the other key elements of the manufacturing unions. So the working class movement has not just been defeated, the working class itself has been pushed up to the edge of almost complete, almost complete destruction by a ceaseless economic and political war waged by the ruling class. And that's a crucial thing to understand. There have been political and industrial defeats before, but what marked out the Thatcher years was a concerted attempt not just to defeat the working class movement, to destroy its industries, to fracture and atomise its communities, and to ensure that the working class could never again rise up in the way that they had done throughout the 60s and into the 70s and early 80s to threaten the rule of capitalist governments and to threaten the existence of the capitalist system itself with the power of working class struggle. The Tories sought to remove the working class as a political force and as an economic force and they did this in uh, various different ways, but the primary weapon was deindustrialization and the usage of mass unemployment as a weapon to bludgeon the working class movement with. And unfortunately, they largely succeeded in that. And this is where we turn back to uh, the, the topic here, which is the development of the wholly pro-EU position of the Labour Party. By the time you get to 1988, Labour has lost three elections. There has been the defeat of the miners' union, uh, escalating deindustrialization, And of course, Kinnock's move to the right in terms of policy and his relentless purging of working class socialists from the Labour Party. At this time, um, a man called Jacques Delors enters our merry little tale. Jacques Delors had previously been a minister in Mitterrand's so-called socialist government, which had entered office in 1981, only to capitulate to the French ruling class very quickly afterwards and become one of the leaders of the move to neoliberalism. Delors had been a minister in that cabinet, advocating for a neoliberal turn, and later he'd been elevated into the halls of the European economic community and he came to address the TUC conference in 1988 with a promise that would be very appealing to the ears of the right-wing trade union leaders who wanted to try and ensure that their position would never be threatened again by militant workers struggle. So Delors came with a very tempting prospect. He came and addressed them and said that they may have uh, been lost in certain struggles throughout the 1980s but that the European economic community was there to ensure that there would be certain minimum standards of workers' rights that would never be fallen below, no matter what happened 
in terms of the composition of domestic governments. Now, this was the beginning of the Trade Union Congress, TUC, embracing the EU in what can only be described as a near-suicidal death grip, because to right-wing trade union leaders, this was a very appealing prospect. They would never have to wage any kind of struggle again. They would lobby the EU for greater workers' rights. They would do everything through the courts. And this marked the turn, really, inside British trade unionism, away from any militant struggle and over to what is referred to commonly as the servicing union model that became so prevalent in the 90s and into the 2000s. The idea that a union was essentially not a vehicle for class struggle but was really just an insurance policy and a series of discounts at certain shops. This was something that became very very dominant and damaged the union movement for a very long time and out of which we're only just beginning to stagger uh, right now over the last few years. Now the embrace of the EU by the TUC was of course wholly opportunistic. The change in the composition of the Labour Party to being something which was primarily based on the professional and managerial classes rather than the working class, combined together to create a situation where the left, or the left and the trade union movement in Britain had become something which was pro-EU, led by political leaders such as Kinnock, who were pro-neoliberal. And then we get the effect of the collapse of the socialist countries of the old, what was known as the Eastern Bloc, and the final implosion of the USSR in 1991. All of that combined together means that by the time you go into the 1990s, the official left in Britain, the official union movement, is dominated by pro-neoliberal, totally pro-capitalist thinking. The Labour Party is dominated by people from the professional and managerial class, the working class as a political force has been defeated and its institutions either taken over or destroyed. So we find ourselves at a low point of class struggle where the middle class has essentially risen to completely take over what was nominally the Workers' Party, though it always had a heavy middle class element within it. So now that takes us to the point of Blair's leadership. Now Blair is a figure... Uh, I'm assuming that everybody listening to this will be wearisomely familiar with from his uh, warmongering antics through the 2000s. But from the very beginning, he was a representative of this new professional and managerial class, new labour, as he called it. And he really was a sort of neoliberal uh, social democrat par excellence in that he took the... Um, the wild and disruptive and destructive methods of capitalism and turn them into something which he not only put forward but he positively embraced he loved the, the what he called the dynamism of the capitalist system even though really it's questionable whether he actually understood it now blair in a very crucial speech in the late 1990s criticized 
heavily what he called the forces of conservatism. Now, those on the Tory party looking at that at the time thought that he was referring to them, but he wasn't, because the Conservative Party in Britain has not really been truly conservative for a very, very long time. Thatcher pretended to be, but you can't support the rabid neoliberal capitalism that she supported, whilst also claiming to want to preserve family and community, considering that, as Karl Marx once said, that capitalism melts all that is solid into air. It destroys all social bonds between people. In fact, if you want to look at an intellectually honest representation of what capitalism means, you should go off and read um, something by Ayn Rand, like The Fountainhead, where that kind of rabid individualism, the celebration of individuals who have no social bonds whatsoever, other than a common interest in maybe profits temporarily. That's what capitalism brings. You can't be claiming to be for community, family and an organic society if you're also in favour of economic forces which completely tear all that of that apart. So what was Blair's forces of conservatism speech referring to? He was referring to the trade union movement. He was referring to the working class. He was referring to his frustration that they consistently refused to become what he regarded and what's commonly referred to now as ideal neoliberal subjects. Now, Blair is a figure that was frequently misunderstood by uh, those in the union movement, by those who were still engaging in wishful thinking about the Labour Party, in that Blair wasn't just saying all of this stuff to get elected. He said it himself. He believed all of this. And his belief in all of this was part of why he was so, and remains so, absolutely rabid about the fact that, the, that Britain should stay in the European Union. Blair at least understood the presence in the European Union was something that the British ruling class demanded of its politicians deliver. And Blair was always very keen to deliver upon the wishes of the British ruling class. It's what's defined his entire political career. So Blair saw the European Union quite clearly as something which would help in his quest to turn Britain into something that would be ever more of a neoliberal paradise. And it's important to recognise that when we say neoliberalism, that's often crudely defined as something which just means sort of US-style libertarianism. And that's not what neoliberalism actually is. Neoliberalism defined by its intellectual forefathers, its intellectual creators, people like Friedrich von Hayek, is something which values, of course, the market relation above everything else. But it doesn't see like, you know, people people such as Ron Paul and other libertarians in the US would see that the state is, is a horrible imposition. Hayek sees a role for the state in, in ensuring that the market is protected and well-regulated and that everybody is, of course, forced into it. And that's what Blair's period in government really was all about, taking what had been a vicious class war, counter-revolution under Thatcher and then under Major, and making sure that that got institutionalised. So for Blair, it wasn't a case that he wasn't prepared to use the state. What he was doing really was following the real neoliberal recipe, which is making sure that the state is used to compel everybody more and more into the market, into the marketplace, to put more and more economic activity related um, only to the market. 
And this is what lies behind something, for instance, um, a good example of this is his so-called reforms to the welfare and benefit system, which Ian Duncan Smith and other Tory ghouls have taken much further. But if you look at all of the so-called reforms that Blair carried out and Brown carried out into his successor to the welfare and benefit system, you find that what it was specifically designed to do was to push people into any low wage job that was available and if you refused that if you couldn't or wouldn't do that you would have your benefits and your means of subsistence in the world withdrawn from you and you would be punished for it and this really is why it's crucial to study and understand Blair's welfare reforms because what he was doing was he was creating a system that would ensure that there would always be people to fill low-wage jobs and what he wanted was to push the British working class into being a class that was permanently stuck in low-wage occupations and he saw that the membership of the European Union was also a crucial part of this. Not only was the welfare and benefit system going to be designed to shove people into low-wage employment but also he would guarantee that even further by agreeing to the expansion of the European Union and by encouraging uh, migrant workers from the former Eastern Bloc countries to come to the UK and to work in what were often low-wage jobs. So this is the big project, one of the big projects anyway of the European Union, is to ensure a Europe-wide pool of labour that can be moved around as and when the capitalist class requires it. So at the moment, what we have is the richer countries in the west west of Europe bringing in labour from the central and eastern parts of Europe, the poorer countries, where you get a lot of very highly qualified people who can't find work or can't find decently paid work in nations such as the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, maybe Poland, uh, Bulgaria, other former Eastern Bloc countries that have remained very, very poor. Um, those a lot of more qualified younger workers in those in those countries migrate west and fulfil the need of capital for highly qualified but low wage labour. So to return to our friend Tony Blair, this is a man who was a the perfect neoliberal politician, bettered perhaps only by his um, success, <coughs> by his um, one of his successors in terms of the leading neoliberal advocates in the world, Barack Obama, who managed to take the formula of Clinton and Blair and absolutely almost perfect it in his presidency. This brings us to the question of, and the awkward question of the Labour Party today. See, after Blair and after Brown and after their economic policies of just allowing the City of London to do anything and everything it wanted to, coming to a hideous collapse in 2008, there was a voting out and a series of recriminate, uh, a voting out of the Labour Party in 2010, but barely. So that what we got in the end was the grotesque spectacle of the Clegg Cameron coalition. The Labour Party, after it lost power, underwent a series of trials and tribulations and contortions where the union bureaucracy, which had been pushed out of power and routinely humiliated by Blair and Brown all the way through the period of New Labour being in office, attempted to reassert some element of control over the Labour Party that they felt they lost 
in the 13 years of uh, new Labour being in government. To that end, you've got some more ambitious trade union leaders starting to emerge. So um, the likes of Tony Woodley from the old Transport and General Workers Union, um, he carried out a merger with the um, Electricians and Engineers Union known as Amicus to form what's now known as Unite. And his hand-picked successor, Len McCluskey, emerged through that structure to be ultimately its new general secretary. Woodley and later McCluskey both wanted to see the role of the union leaders restored within Labour to a way that it was back in the, the, the 80s and early 1990s, where the right wing of the Labour Party was dependent to a great extent upon the support of the trade union leaders. Now, their big objection to Blair and Brown was that they both had largely escaped that pressure that used to be there. So they wanted to find somebody who would work with them in restoring that role. Their first choice was Miliband. Now, Ed Miliband was a largely awful uh, political leader, completely unable to command the Labour Party parliamentary faction, completely contradictory when it came to policy. He'd move towards some mild social democratic changes in one moment and then retreat into wholesale neoliberalism the next. Um, and such a confused and contradictory mess inevitably met a grisly political defeat in 2015. This brings us to the state of the Labour Party today and the role of its current leadership composed of lifelong anti-EU politicians Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. It should be emphasised that both these men have their backgrounds within the far left of the parliamentary Labour Party. Corbyn emerged through um, his alliance with his mentor and friend, the late Tony Benn, who was the leading voice on the broad left against the EEC and EU for many decades, right up until the point of his death in 2014. McDonnell comes more from ultimately um, a Trotskyite tradition, but one that is he has long since abandoned, and is one of the few in the Labour Party who would make a claim of being some kind of Marxist, even up to this day. Now, it should be emphasised that Corbyn's victory in 2015 was, was largely unexpected, but reflected a widespread frustration that was felt even within the Labour Party membership at that time that the Blairites had been in charge for 20 years and, and for the last two elections had delivered nothing but defeats and an ever-declining share of the working-class vote throughout their time in office. The turn to Corbyn was a reflection of the fact that the, there was a belief that this was just simply not working anymore. Unfortunately for Corbyn, when he was elected, he was elected in to, to be in charge of a party that its parliamentary fraction had long since escaped any democratic pressure that regarded itself as being the owners of the party and who were so rabidly pro-capitalist and subsequently pro-EU that they regarded his leadership as illegitimate from day one. Now, unfortunately, Corbyn, who is, as I said, a lifelong campaigner against the EU has submitted himself to being controlled by this element within the Labour Party. Now it's crucial to understand here that the openly rabidly Blairite element of the Labour Party has diminished over the years. They have largely quit, walked out, 
gone out in a blaze of sour grapes. Prior to recording this, I heard that the uh, joyous news that um, fat boy Finn, Tom Watson, has ended his political career and resigned both as deputy leader and an MP. So it's not just the open Blairites that are posing this problem of essentially controlling the policy with regard to the European Union, but it's a policy that, as we covered in our previous section on the role of the TUC leaders and the adoption of a completely pro-EU line after the intervention of Jacques Delors in 1988, the Labour Party as a structure has been structured to be very, very pro-EU. Even now, after a, an influx of new members, um, its parliamentary fraction has very few MPs in it who represent the kind of uh, politics that Tony Benn, Michael Foote, Peter Shaw and Barbara Castle used to represent, which is a, a leftist case in the broader sense of the term against uh, the EU on the grounds that it blocked key elements that a Labour Party would want to achieve. Uh, even though that case is more true now even than it was 40 years ago, if you look into the treaties that have been signed by successive British governments with regard to essentially making deficit spending illegal, to ruling out um, state ownership of industry, to forcing privatisation of every public service, to guard to the what's known as the fourth rail package, which is seeing long-held state-run enterprises in, on the railways in France and Germany be privatised. The EU, since its very beginning, has been about creating markets, privatising everything it possibly could, and expanding those markets continuously. You cannot really claim to be any kind of social democrat even that wants to implement changes to control uh, the market for more the benefit of the working class and also be an advocate of remaining in the European Union. It makes no sense and yet there are very few Labour MPs who will make that case today. It's no more than a handful and those are very isolated and often subject to threats of deselection by the likes of uh, failed journalist and now uh, pro-NATO handicap impersonator Paul Mason. So why is this, why have we reached this point where even with a left-wing leader who has a lifetime of opposition to the EU behind him, and yet he and his immediate close collaborator John McDonnell are now going up and down the country uh, evangelising about the EU. Corbyn, it has to be said, is less doing this than McDonnell is. But the complete embrace of uh, the logic of remain at all costs, even if it is masked by Labour's rather woolly language about, oh, well, we'll go negotiate a deal, then we'll put the deal back to the people in a referendum and we'll campaign against our own deal. No one with half a brain believes that that's a real position. The real position is remain in the EU at all costs. Now, for the likes of Keir Starmer and others on the Labour front bench, like Emily Thornberry, it's because they are ardent EU federalists. They're not socialists or even social democrats by any real description. Uh, they are essentially free market liberals who object to the Conservative Party, it seems mainly on the grounds of um, aesthetics. And their position is clear. What he's Less clear is the fact that the soft left and the uh, trade union leadership and even those who um, would call themselves Corbynite socialists remain very pro-EU, sometimes to the point of hysteria. And to answer why that is, again, we need to consider 
both the changes to the Labour Party, but also how political debate within, to use Habermas's term, the public sphere of Britain has been conducted over the last 30 years. Now, since you know the official declaration of Francis Fukuyama that socialism was dead, history was over, etc., etc., the neoliberal paradigm of politics and public life has not only systematically excluded any kind of working class politics whatsoever, and not only that, it has made that into a completely forbidden subject in that a whole generation, my own generation, grows up barely even knowing that such a thing existed. Now, what's happened is that since the early 1990s, Political debate in Britain and other nations, um, such as the United States, has been constructed in a way as to contrast two alter and only two points of view. That there is the free market liberals who believe in maybe some small social protections for workers, but mainly believe wholeheartedly in neoliberalism, but they're also uh, make the argument that they're, they're enlightened, cosmopolitan, anti-racists, they are pro-LGBT rights, they are people who are open to the world. As Blair himself said, the division isn't left or right anymore, the D division is, are you open to the world or close to it? And the sort of 1990s joyous neoliberalism, that was the birthing point of that particular point of view. And the other side of the acceptable political debate, the political debate we are presented with, is presented as these ludicrous far-right conservatives who are, who want to essentially create some kind of theocracy. Um, this is something that Blair and Clinton specifically triangulated their positions to attain, that they wanted to put themselves in a place where, yes, the old working-class voters of the Labour Party no, were not keen on uh, New Labour at all, didn't like it. But the opposition, the only opposition that was ever presented was that of like Ian Duncan Smith's Conservative Party, which is why David Cameron and co went on an extensive rebrand to try and escape that framing, to move closer to Blair's New Labour, which ultimately succeeded in creating two parties dedicated to essentially neoliberal uh, bourgeois politics to the extent where even the old rump of social conservatism in the, in the Conservative Party was completely cut off and excluded. So you've had for three decades a public sphere which portrays those who are opposed to the European Union as only coming from the Sir Teddy Taylor, Nigel Farage, Aaron Banks school of either far-right Toryism or kind of resurgent English nationalism or sort of a cons uh, sort of ultra-conservative libertarian view. And that's the contrast that has been sustained, not just by those in the media who are obviously heavily invested in it, not just those in the political class, but also the trade union movement has sustained that false dichotomy that false debate the trade union movement has not attempted to promote any kind of working class politics any kind of politics that could coherently critique the european union and other institutions of capitalist liberalism meaning that the only critique that was publicly available or widely available for a very long time was that of the more conservative right 
to the more conservative right wing. So as a consequence, you have a whole generation uh, of leftists in the various different sectarian groups that exist in Britain, leftists within the unions, who grow up essentially with, they might think they're developing a critique of neoliberalism, but they exist very much within it. And by that I mean that they reflect that false dichotomy of views. And on the European Union, this is particularly glaring, that something which is, has always been wholly hostile to any kind of socialist change was suddenly held up as a bastion of anti-racism, despite the fact that fascists, far-rightists, and um, every other different shade of right-wing opinion has always found a way to coexist or even thrive within the European Union. In fact, the uh, failed wannabe British Führer Oswald Mosley once uh, wrote a pamphlet in the 1960s stating that um, he was very much in favour of a unified Europe on the grounds that it would be better able to exploit the continent of Africa as uh, one unified European colonising power. And ironically, Mosley was being far more visionary there than even he would have predicted, given that that is exactly how the European Union is treating the African nations now as something to be hyper-exploited for the benefits of the European capitalist classes. So now we have a situation where for many years the European Union has been completely falsely associated with an anti-racist position. And even the anti-racist politics which have reflected that have been woefully inadequate so now we saw ridiculous spectacles all the way through the 2000s up until the referendum in 2016 where forces that were supposedly on the revolutionary left such as the SWP and others were running around screaming that they needed to um, organize a new demo a new front organization against the uh, the fascism of uh, UKIP and things like that now UKIP are a right-wing party, they became a very right-wing party, but to equate them with an organised fascist movement was always ridiculous hyperbole. To equate, as many are doing now, Boris Johnson with uh, organised fascism is a ridiculous hyperbole, and it doesn't actually win anybody over to your cause by claiming so. And the framing of the EU as being the bastion of multicultural um, enlightenment really led us into a place where the left was defending neoliberalism and not advocating for any kind of socialist class-based politics. And so therefore it was, it shouldn't have really been a surprise that when we went into the 2016 referendum, those of us advocating for the socialist case for leaving the European Union, particularly those of us who were of the millennial generation, were very much in a minority amongst um, the wider, broader left. And in fact, when you advocated for the left case for leave, which should really be self-explanatory given the absolutely inimical nature of the European Union to socialist change, we were greeted by either blank faces or in some cases hysterical rage by people of our own age group and people who nominally agreed with us because they'd been brought up on the 
absolute falsehood that somehow the only choice was between uh, the uh, open-minded Europeanism of the EU and some sort of cartoonish return to the 1950s with um, Britain being ruled by a junta headed by Nigel Farage, the ghost of Margaret Thatcher and Harry Enfield's old Tory boy character. But this shouldn't be a surprise when the ruling class narrative is completely undisrupted by anybody on the left. It should not be a surprise that when we reach a point of political crisis, the initial points of view within it are that which has been the ruling ideology of capitalism in Britain since at least the late 1980s. So now we are in a position where we are going into an election where the Labour Party is headed by a lifelong opponent of the European Union who is advocating passionately to remain within it. And the Conservative Party is led by a man who is, until very recently, a lifelong advocate of the European Union, who is now basing his entire case for election upon delivering the Leave vote and leaving the European Union. Now, it should be said that Boris Johnson's deal, like Theresa May's deal before him, is just simply a Brexit in name only. It is something which has been cooked up in consultation, obviously, with the British capitalist class, who, is, who Boris Johnson and the Tories really represent and have always represented. And what Boris Johnson, as his predecessor Theresa May, is trying to do is to come up with a deal that satisfies uh, the Tory voting base that voted to leave, but also does not damage the uh, enormous profits enjoyed by the British capitalist class that come to them, at least in part, through the membership of the European Union. So both leaders are in the middle of a contradictory mess. And how this plays out within the upcoming election is going to be very interesting in terms of which way does the voting public jump. Now, I'll be doing another podcast specifically on the election, and that'll be coming out next week. But what I've wanted to cover here is a very quick primer of the debates and discussions within the British left, within the wider Labour movement, why things stand the way that they do. We'll be going more in depth on all of this in future episodes, but I hope you've gained some kind of enlightenment from this, and we'll be coming back next week with our election special. So put that in your diaries, mark that on your favourite podcast app, and maybe through the course of these podcasts I can persuade you to become at least tanky adjacent.